Welcome to another episode of Almost Awakened. I'm your host, Bill Real. Grateful for the chance to sit down with you today. This is going to be the first in a long line of conversations that uh, we will be having here on this podcast with folks that I deeply respect as having experienced the complexity of life and who I think have a perspective that has uh, gained wisdom uh, and experience that would make their uh, perspective being shared with you valuable to helping each of you to kind of lean into what Richard Rohr calls the second half of life. And so without further ado, I'm going to bring on my guest today, uh, the Fresh King, Benjamin. Uh, ben, how are you? Hey, Bill. I'm doing really great. Thanks for that. Uh, thanks for that welcome. And I'm uh, I'm so tickled to be uh, your first con conversation. Yeah. And it, you and I have known each other uh, for several years now at this point. Mm -hmm. uh, when I moved out here to Southern Utah, I met you right away and uh, sat down uh, at a group setting and had the chance to listen to you tell your story. And I found it deeply captivating. And that's been told in other places. So we're not going to do that necessarily here, other than sort of a brief mention. But before we jump into it, I'll give you a moment to give a brief uh, bio about yourself. And then we'll talk a little bit about that upbringing so that folks can understand uh, what kind of experiences you bring to this conversation table. Awesome. So, uh, just brief bio. I'm uh, I, I was born in Mormon polygamy. Um, my parents I and mean, my family has been LD. They've been Mormon for almost 200 years. They joined in 1835. Um, in the early uh, in the early days of the church, they practiced polygamy. They didn't practice polygamy for a while with the LDS Church, and then my parents and grandparents um, left the LDS Church and joined what's called the AUB or the Apostolic United Brethren. That's the that's the sister wives. Um, Sister wives, family, sister wives, uh, 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 sect. And, um, yeah, I was born, I was born into that. Um, I was undocumented. I was raised on a little, I call it a compound. It was like our family's ranch and we didn't go to school. We were labor trafficked in their bakery. Instead, I ended up going to college when I was about 17 or 18 because my, my parents wanted me to become a lawyer so that they could, uh, so that I could protect them from the evil government. And uh, while I was at college, I decided to join the LDS church. And after a couple of years of being LDS, I deconstructed it entirely. And, and then that really threw me into a, what I would call a spiritual and healing journey where I, I, I had to sort of grapple with what had happened to me and that because some traumatic things happened. And when, I, when it was for God, it was okay. But as soon as, as soon as it wasn't for God anymore, right? As soon as it was because of a lie that was told 200 years ago, um, my world kind of crumbled. And so I, I, I went to therapy. I did, a, I, I went on a big journey. Um, I had to make a couple of really big changes in my life because my, I'd sort of aligned and built my life under uh, a misapprehension. Mm -hmm. And so I had to, uh, I had to uh, adjust that. And that lasted, I mean, I'm still, I think you're always kind of in that, but that, that really lasted for about seven years. And, uh, and I feel like I'm, I'm now kind of just a couple of years ago coming out on the, the end of that. And when, and part of what came out of that is that I, um, I, I made a career change and now I'm a comedian. So I, um, I, I realized that the, there was a part of me that always wanted to be expressed and it was performative and it was comedic and it was meaningful. And so I started doing, uh, I start, I, I, I kicked off that about two years ago and I just started, I started headlining this year 
And uh, so I'm, I'm having a, it's like a, a new kind of thing that's sort of bursting onto the scene. And I'm very excited to be, to be on that journey. Yeah. Fantastic. Um, in my time knowing you, you're, it's obvious immediately that you're very intelligent. You grow up in this system that doesn't really treasure intelligence. It really treasures loyalty and obedience. And as you pointed out, education's not even valued for the most part. Um, mm -hmm. The education that's given in these fundamentalist, polygamous Mormon groups is so limited. And yet somehow you shine through that to the point where your family and and uh, and the support of others outside of that are pushing for you to go to college. And I'm just I'm just curious uh, in systems like Mormonism, but even more fundamentalist Mormonism, how tricky of a walk that is for education, you know, to be smart and to want to do something important with your life, something meaningful with your life. Mm -hmm. And also the the system's sort of reluctance to value education. Yeah, that's such a great question, and and it's I would maybe just add a little uh, another layer of nuance to that because it's I, I love the way that you said that the system doesn't value education, and it also values education differently for different people, right? So if you are if you're male, you're more likely to get a good education than if you're female because mm. as a man you would need it, right? So it's really about the, the drive for education is really about um, utility. It's not about sort of expanding the individual. So it's not about helping you. Well-being, be well contentment. It's really right. how can you serve this system how can you to serve protect it? us? Yeah. And if you, if, you, if you need to be a wife and a mother, you're going to be educated in the tasks of being a wife and a mother. And if you need to be a caretaker or a provider, you're going to be educated in that way. Um, but there's also this really, you know, so I, I remember growing up, I... I I've always been, I've always been a smart kid. Like I, I, I learned how to read when I was very young, kind of from watching my mom teach my older brother how to read. I would sort of look over their shoulder. I don't ever remember learning how to read. Like I don't remember ever not knowing how to read. And so that was sort of my escape. And because the world that I grew up in was very chaotic and very traumatic, um, and because I was pretty good at dissociating, <laughs> which I learned later is what I was doing, um, I was able to really get lost in a lot of books. And that that it's it's like this it's like this this virtuous spiral, right? The more you read, the more powerful reading is. And so I really have to give. And there was some resistance, right? My dad for a while he didn't want me to read anything that he hadn't read previously. And my dad is not a he's not a reader. He doesn't really read very much. And so that would have really limited my ability to, to do that. And, and so I actually had, and then I also had my, my, my grandpa, my dad's dad, that was also where we lived. He was, he was like very anti-education. Like he was like, we're just ranchers. We're just cowboys. And you never, you never, like he would make fun of, and I got made fun of a lot, right. For being the smart one, for thinking I was smart, all of that stuff. Um, and I think I really have to credit um, a couple of really powerful women in my life because they they showed up in ways that sort of protected and assisted me in in expanding and and playing with my mind and that that ultimately is what saved me and one of those women was my mom and she kind of when my dad tried to sort of put this wall and say I can't read anything that he hasn't read she she fought that and she said, no, if we, if we do that, then he's not here. He's going to be so bored. Like you're never going to be able to keep up. 
And then she would take me to the library and she would let me check out really any kind of books that I wanted. And, and so she was constantly kind of feeding that. And then um, the other person that really showed up for me in that way that I, I really loved what it's actually, it was one of my grandmas, but it wasn't one of my birth grandmas. So my other mom's mom, who wasn't polygamous, she was, she was just LDS. She lived in a town, maybe 20 minutes from where we grew up, but she was really, she was such a lovely human and she welcomed all of the grandchildren into her home, not just her, her daughter's kids. And, and so she treated me just like any of any, any of her actual grandkids. And, uh, she sort of noticed that I had a, that I like to read. And so she fed me fantasy. And I think fantasy is such a great tool for expanding your mind. And she fed me all these really great fantasy books. And then when other members of the family, like my grandpa would, would come at me or make fun of me for, for reading, um, she would, she would defend me publicly. And, um, and I'm really grateful to both of those in, in my life, because I think that is what sort of provided the opportunity for, for me to just explore what my brain wanted to do. And, and that ultimately is what, what allowed me to kind of think my way out of two very dangerous cults. Yeah. It, it almost always takes somebody to side with you, to be your advocate in some way for mm -hmm. you to step outside of like the unhealthiness of an unhealthy system and to be able to kind of rise above it. And so, so kudos to, uh, to the folks in your life uh, that, that made that difference. I, I won't necessarily ask these questions in order, but I want to jump into uh, the first question. And yeah. I want to set it up this way, which is, you know, you spent time in several unhealthy religious systems, mm -hmm. all connected to Mormonism. You know, I, I happen to have been a member of the LDS faith, but, and it's bad enough. I, I can sit here and think about the tangible trauma uh, and harshness of that experience at times. And, and I grew up in the softest version of Mormonism, yeah. right? Well, outside the community of Christ, probably. And uh, we're all a little jealous of the community of Christ. Yeah. Yeah. They're not doing great in activity rates and, and growth, but they sure aren't traumatizing. They're sure their gentle. Yeah. They're gentle. Um, gentle doesn't seem to work though. It's why, it's why these systems do so well that are unhealthy. But yeah, one of the things that religion does is it binds together a community of people. It gives you easy access to people who at least on the surface level care about you, mm -hmm. want to uh, help you, serve you, can, you know, look out for your, your greater good. Um, religion is often filled with uh, rituals and ceremonies. Um, and, and those rituals and ceremonies tie us to the outside world. They connect us to our inner world. Religion really does serve an evolutionary process that is so crucial. Yeah. And very powerful. Yeah. And, and here we are, you and I, and millions of others, deconstructing our religious beliefs, our religious system. And for the folks who do that, at least in the post-Mormon world, often end up in sort of atheism, which I, to some degree, you and yeah. I both have ended up at. And when you let go of, if you choose to let go of ritual and ceremony completely, you sort of disconnect yourself from the larger world. And people tend to do that with various degrees of success. but it seems as though if we're going to have a society that's 
successful long into the future and we humans connect with each other and we collaborate and we work together, there's still a need for myth, for ritual and for ceremony. Mm -hmm. Your thoughts on taking that apart from your old system, trying moments of not having that, what you were missing and maybe how you in the present moment have filled your life with something that connects to myth ritual and ceremony. Yeah, I I I love that question and and that that really uh, that's going to allow me to kind of maybe share uh, one of the most important journeys that I've been on and 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 really one of the most lovely because so so you leave I leave Mormonism. And when you leave Mormonism, uh I think the, the one of the most powerful feelings that a lot of people feel is just this really deep sense of betrayal right? Just like, how could you lie to me in such a spectacular, how dare you, right? And and when I experienced that, I felt so, it was like a bad breakup where you, it's really gnarly. And then afterwards you're like, mm, do I really, do I really want to love again? And, yeah. um, and so I kind of threw myself into, into sort of an, and I would just say it like an atheist. I'm still pissed at my old girlfriend, by the way. I'm still pissed right. at her. Like, fuck. <laughs> you know, like, those she shit on me so many times. Those I gave her so many chances to do the right thing. Hurt, man. So I, I went on, I was like, I'm going to be, I'm just going to be an atheist for a while. And I'm only going to, I'm only going to accept things that I know are factually true. Cause I've spent yeah. so much time. I've spent at this point when I left, I'd spent 25 years in, in a fantasy land. In a, like it was, I was, it was like, I lived in the two, like I lived in a society that believed that the Lord of the Rings was actually actual history. Yeah. Can right? Bilbo Baggins ride a bicycle. Let's discuss that. Right. Like, let's talk about that. So that's not, that's, so I'm like, we're science is only real. So I got on this huge, I, I, I took a bunch of science courses from the great courses. I read a bunch. I read Carl Sagan. I read, read Neil deGrasse. I read as much as I possibly could yeah. to understand that world. And that, and I did that for, for a number of years, there were probably four or five years where I, I was kind of on that kick and I, two things happened. Number one, I loved it. Like it felt like what it did is it grounded me. It gave me access to this other tool that humans had developed called science. And it showed me the way that the science tool worked and it showed me what the science tool could do. And it made me fall in love with the science tool. The science tool, awesome. One of the coolest tools that humans have invented. And after a couple of years of exclusively using the science tool, I started to feel like my life felt a little bit sterile. Like it felt like my life was a white laboratory. And I want my life to be a little bit more magic than that. I want my life to be a little more messy than that. I want my life to be a little more human than that. And so I started to feel kind of like some, I would describe as like an existential bummer. Like I want to be able to believe in myth and magic and feel those happy feelings that I felt in Mormonism, mm -hmm. but I don't think that I can and be in integrity because it's not true. Right. Because, because I'm, I'm on the science kick. And then I read, um, then I read Sapiens by Yuval Noah Harari. Right. Mm -hmm. And you've read this book. Mm -hmm. And so the core premise of this book is that the, thing that enabled humans to cooperate and th thus win essentially the hominid battle. There were other hominids besides sapiens. We dominated them. And it's not, because, 
we kicked ass. Yeah. It's not because we were smarter. It's not because we were more violent. It's not because we were bigger or stronger. It's actually because Harari claims it's because we were better at cooperating. We were better at working together. And then he goes and he asks the question, well, why? What was it about Sapiens that allowed us to cooperate so powerfully? And he says, his thesis is that it's myth. It's our ability to believe in things that are not true. So he asks, everyone loves to ask the question, what built the pyramids? Was it aliens? Was it humans? Da, 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 da. What built the pyramids was the belief that Pharaoh was God. Because right. if humans, if a whole bunch, if you get millions of humans to believe that Pharaoh is God, then they build fucking pyramids. That's what they do. And so that, I read that and I was like, oh, belief and myth is a human tool. It's a human tool just like science. And it's a human tool that's actually far older and more powerful than Mormonism, right? Belief has been around for hundreds of thousands of years. Yeah. Mormonism has been around for 200 years. Mormonism is a piddly little thing compared to the power of human belief. And so I decided that I wanted to take belief back. Mormonism doesn't get to keep belief. Mormonism doesn't get to keep God. So then I had to start to ask myself, okay, well, what role does belief play in my life? And what I started to find was um, that there were things that I could believe that made my life better. So one example for that for me was is, is a practice called Qigong. Qigong is a, a Chinese energetic practice, and it involves some physical movement, which is good for your body, and then some imaginative movement. So you imagine the qi moving through your body as you're doing these movements. And here's the thing about our brain that's kind of cool. When we imagine things, like have you ever imagined an argument with someone and it made you get like a little pit in your stomach? right? We do this all the time. We imagine things and that creates our physical reality. We, we imagined that we could go to the moon and then we went to the moon. So what I realized is if I take back belief and I say, you don't get to tell me what I believe, I, belief is mine. Mm. Then I can then look around the world and I can say, what are the beliefs that I want to adopt into my life that are going to make me happy? And that opened up this amazing smorgasbord of human belief, because it turns out humans have been playing with belief for a really long time. And there are lots of really fascinating systems that if you encounter them mythically, like, and not that they have to be literally true, but are they useful tools for understanding a part of the world that we know is there? We know that there's something divine. We know that there's something a little bit that's bigger than us and outside of our comprehension. And we can't quite get science to talk about that yet, but we know that there's something there. And if we can have a language to talk about that, that is just belief, I think that's really powerful. But I think that we need to acknowledge that that's the conversation that we're having. So for me, belief starts to become dangerous when it, when it begins to insist on being literally true. So Mormonism could be, Mormonism actually, I think, has a couple of really interesting beliefs within it that could be used mythically and creatively in really interesting ways. Like 
uh, the idea that, well, they've sort of scrapped this, but this idea that the humans could become gods. I think that's a pretty interesting I, divine the, theological idea and can act, could actually help us have conversations around things like AI and expanding life and uploading consciousness, right? We actually need to, we need belief to help us have these conversations. So I was, I sort of like intellectually reclaimed belief. And then when I intellectually reclaimed belief, I opened myself up to experientially connecting with belief. And what happened there is that I, I went to, I started going to places that felt like spiritual experiences. So for me, what that looked like was um, festivals, music, uh, raves. I went to one, I, I still remember this. It was, it was like this little house party. A friend of mine had, had brought this like, like this amazing like spiritual singer to, to come to the house and she sang for us. And she was a little, she's very new agey. She was a little weird. She told everyone that she was from Saturn and that she only drank air. And for about five minutes during the night, she had me convinced that I could also survive only on air because she was pretty <laughs> <laughs> And, but she started singing. And when she started singing, she had taken old worship songs, old Christian worship songs and retooled them as sort of EDM spiritual ballads. And when I heard her sing, I, I felt this overwhelming sense of awe and worship in my body. And I was overcome and I was like, oh my God, that is worship, what I'm feeling right now. And so I, I fell to my knees and I was sobbing and I worshiped because I, I, I saw something that was, that was worthy of worship. And, and since then I've realized that, that worship, worship is a beautiful, oh my God, worship is such a beautiful human emotion and it is so powerful and so fun to engage in that feeling when you find something that feels worthy of worship. And if you just open your eyes and look around our world, there are so many things that are worthy of our worship. Just not Mormon God. Yeah. I love it. A lot of things came up. I made a bunch of little notes here. I just, uh, I was in a conversation with uh, a young guy last night. Uh, my wife had a coworker come over and uh, we just had an evening of good conversation and uh, we were talking about sort of the connection to sapiens that primates, other primates, uh, orangutans, chimpanzees, gorillas, and, and all other animals too, for that matter, uh, make noises. Mm -hmm. And those noises mean things. Like if you're in a uh, uh, a society of silver or of gorillas, the silverback leader makes a grunt and everyone else knows he's pissed. So in a way, sounds having meaning is language. Mm -hmm. Something, though, made us sapiens different where we suddenly had the thought of if we could string multiple sounds together, we could convey not only an emotion or a simple idea, we could convey these complex ideas. Yeah. And right. It starts off as language. It turns into gossip. It turns into myth. Each one of those at various layers have crucial importance to the human species, which, you know, which human species survive us being human homo sapiens, but all these other ones dying out, as you pointed out. Um, you also talked about how 
you could have myths be useful but not be true. And my immediate thought was like superhero movies. When I go to see Spider-Man, I know Spider-Man's fiction. And you and I, and I don't know how much you had a chance to watch television as a child, but I was inundated with cartoons and superheroes, even watching like WWF wrestling. Mm-hmm. And uh, Hulk Hogan's a good guy, and the Iron Sheik's a bad guy. And I knew that wrestling wasn't real, and yet we use myth as obvious fiction all the time to tell us as humans what is good and yes. bad behavior. We don't, we don't need myths to be true. We don't need and 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 honestly, like some of the most powerful myths aren't true, right? Like like Lamez Arab. Right. What a what a fantastic, mm. beautiful myth about forgiveness and love and suffering. Right. It's all made up. It's all made up, but that doesn't matter. And so I, I really I, I really think that it is like I feel like a duty as a as sort of a post-religious spiritual person to take belief back from religion, belief and worship. They don't belong to religion. They belong to humanity. We made that shit up. It's our toys. It's our tools. And what they've done, and this is what makes me like, just like primally angry. I feel angry, like going back to my caveman DNA, that some humans came in and said, hey, this thing that we all have and get and play with, we all know is pretend, we all know is play, we all know is imaginative and fun. That's ours now. And we get to tell you how to interact with it. And if you don't interact with it in the way that we tell you to, you are unrighteous, you are sinful, and you must feel shame and guilt until you repent. Yeah. Because that is an abuse of power. That is an abuse of a very natural human feeling. And it is evil. That's an evil thing to do. Uh, We'll get into psychedelics here later but um having had several experiences with conscious altering tools ayahuasca magic mushrooms lsd and i've done it in group settings done it solo too but group settings not ayahuasca i would never recommend anyone do ayahuasca alone by yourself <laughs> but, <laughs> but in in these group settings everybody takes a conscious altering tool everybody trips you know right everybody goes off into some other planet essentially they blast off and you sort of all recognize that whatever crazy happens tonight, you're welcome to share your crazy. You don't have a right to impose to me that your crazy is true. Right. Right. And it's where religion gets uh, off track. And, and of course, it does it on purpose because it gets it power and control and uh, it's able to manipulate for its own benefit and perpetuation. But the difference comes in is that when the shaman says, Hey, everyone's going to blast off, go have an incredible experience. When you get done, let's talk about what you experienced and let's allow the group to integrate that with their own inner world, what's true and what isn't, but no one here is going to tell someone else what is real or true. And we're and, sh- and that's spirituality to me is when you get to dictate how the experiences you're having, what they mean. And then where spirituality turns into religion is what you pointed out, which is when someone else comes along and says, no, 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 no. I, I hear you, but you don't get to say what this means. We're the authorities. Right. We're going to tell you what this means. And I, I found it deeply interesting that you jump back into what 
you sort of call it, I'll call it something different here, pseudo ritual, mm -hmm. which is you put yourself in experiences where you get to feel the same things that were felt from a religious community. Yeah. But it is happening in spaces that are completely safe for you to have your own experience going to a concert, for instance. Yep. And, and maybe if I could even just lean in, into it a little bit more, not only, not only the same experiences that I had in religion, but the experiences that I always wanted to have in religion and never did, because I think yeah. that the dirty, ugly truth at the heart of Mormonism and at the heart of most religions is that everyone there is not experiencing the kinds of experiences that they want. Right. Mm. I, I remember feeling profoundly disappointed spiritually as a Mormon with every mm. step up M going to the temple was supposed to be endowed with power from on high, deeply insightful, transcendent. And I don't think, I think I fucked up that word, <laughs> whatever that word is. And, and like, it wasn't, it was confusing. It was scary and it was weird. And so uh, one of the things that, because one, one of the things I'm the most excited about having stepped down now and kind of played in the, in the wicked world for a little bit is now I've started to find experiences that are giving me that sense of awe and wonder and meaning and purpose that I always wanted to have in religion, but never did. Mm. Mm. Totally. Totally. Um, Let's jump to the next question, which you mentioned earlier that when you stepped out of religion, you deconstructed, you uh, took on science as kind of the lens you would see through if it wasn't tangible and you knocked on the table. Yeah. And you said, if it's not like this table, then uh, then I'm just not going to buy into it. And then and then you talk about how as you move forward, you start to sort of insert yourself into spaces that are back at least open to some mystery. And one of the questions we wanted to talk about today was your thoughts on the nature of reality and consciousness. Because as you were saying, I stepped out of religion and I wanted to know what was tangible yeah. at the table. It reminded me of folks like Donald Hoffman, if you're familiar with him at all. But you can certainly relate to uh, some of this stuff that's coming out on the front end of quantum mechanics. Totally. We're beginning to get into that. Yeah. Where having an observer changes reality, which makes no sense. Yeah. And, and there's these debates with Neil deGrasse Tyson about whether we're in a simulation. He says it's 50-50, uh, I think, is what he says. Yeah. Um, and, and guys, and again, maybe you're not familiar with, but Donald Hoffman says, and, and other scientists are saying, you can Google it now, and it's in uh, the scientific magazines. It's in the national uh, news and periodicals covering it. But it's this idea, the argument right now is whether time and space are fundamental or not to the universe. And there are, and there are scientists yes. on the front end saying time and space is not fundamental to the universe. And then in the same conversation, or at least right next to it, there are serious scientists who are taken seriously by the scientific community who are making the argument that consciousness might be the thing that's fun fundamental to the universe. Interesting. And so, so even as you knock on the table, and, and I'll say this too, and I've said it before in another episode, um, Donald Hoffman and others make the argument that our eyes are like a VR headset. And, mm. and we all grasp it. We think we're seeing the world as it is. Totally. Right? Yeah. But we also intuitively recognize that dogs see the world differently. They pick up things that we don't, and they don't see things that we do. Mm -hmm. Right? 
we sense that cats do it differently. We sense that trees are taking in sensory information about the world around them differently. Mycelium and magic mushrooms and, and how they communicate with the forest floor. We sort of get, if we slow down and go like, maybe I don't see reality the way it is, we sense that I almost certainly see certain things about the world that other life forms don't, and I'm missing things about the world that other life forms do. Mm -hmm. Your thoughts on like consciousness and reality and yeah. whether you can still go like I can only count on the table. Well, maybe well, the table is not even a table. Well, and my and and since you know, as I've as I've uh, as I've explored science, what I found is that we don't science we don't actually know how I'm able to knock on this table. Right. We don't know why. Yeah. Why do why do these atoms not just go through those atoms? We don't know that, which yeah. which I think I think so. So I there's so much to unpack there. I think the first thing that I want to say is that. I think one of the most powerful gifts that a Mormon faith crisis gives you is the profound understanding that you can be 100 percent wrong. About things that you were 100% sure right, of. sure about, right? <laughs> right? And that that realization, oh my God, is it painful? Yeah. Oh my God, does it hurt? And oh my God, am I grateful for it? Because mm -hmm. what it means is I can be totally wrong. So now, now I just I just approach life softer, more gently. All of my opinions are loosely held, right? Because, and, and what I really know is that we don't actually know. So I think that, I think that science can kind of, there, there are aspects of the science world that can get a little bit um, dogmatic, just like religion, where we're, we do know, we do know. Anyone who says that they know, doesn't know. Right. And here's what I think about reality. Anybody who names it is missing it. Anybody who right. defines it is wrong. Is wrong. We yeah. don't know. It is so much bigger, but a couple, couple thoughts. I think there are, I think there are like eggs, right? So different layers of it. So, so like to, to the simulation idea, I think we are all living in a simulation of our own creation, right? Mm -hmm. So if you imagine like this meat suit that I've got, it has to navigate a world that is uncertain and it does not know. Mm -hmm. And the only way that it can navigate it is through these things and this thing and these thing and this thing, and then this, and then feeling, right? Mm -hmm. And so, and all of that is kind of messed up, right? If you actually look at the physiology of like your eye, for example, everything that you see is upside down and there's a hole in it because in order functionally for the light to come through your, your iris, you have, there's a part of you right here and right here that you don't see. And also it's upside down. And so, yeah, by the way, to show that they, they've done studies where they put a goggles on you that turns the world upside down Yeah, and you put it on and the world is upside down. And if you wear those goggles nonstop by day four or five, the world turns back up again on its right side. Your brain is flipping things. Yes. Right. Which means that your brain is creating a simulation. And it is a simulation, right? It's a predictive simulation because all of your responses are like 0 0.06 seconds behind because of these stimulus, yeah. right? It takes a certain amount of time for sensory data to come into your system and then for your brain to process it. So not only are you in a simulation, you're in a predictive simulation because the simulation isn't responding to what's happening because that would be too slow. Mm -hmm. It's responding what based on previous experience and beliefs 
it believes is going to happen, which is why I think going back to our earlier conversation about myth as a human tool, that's why myth and belief, that's why I wanted to take belief back is because my beliefs inform the simulation that I'm running. Mm -hmm. And so if I can have powerful beliefs, right? I know a guy who believes that if he wears blue every day, he'll be successful. That's bullshit. That's not a true thing. And the dude wears blue every single day and is wildly successful. Why? Yeah. Because he tricked his brain. And he said, brain, if I do this thing, then I'll be successful. And, and now he is. So he puts his blue shirt on and he feels a fictional confidence that his day is going to go great. He And that confidence over days, weeks, months, years translates to a different world showing up for him, unfolding in front of him than what it would have been. And, and just to speak really quick to your point, you're 100% right. The science shows that whatever it is, 300 milliseconds or whatever, your brain creates a projection of what that next moment is going to be. And you're actually living in the future projection of what your brain thinks is going to happen yes. rather than the world as it is. So when you step off of a curb and you don't quite catch your footing right, because your brain told you that the difference in height was not what it actually was. It's it's only when the miscalculation is felt and observed by your brain and body that your brain recorrects and goes like, oh no no no, there's a three inch difference there than what we thought. Right. Um, it, it's and those moments crazy. are horrifying, right? Those those are those are, sci neuroscientists call those prediction errors, right? And if you've ever done that, like when you took when you go down the step and it's not that's. That's your whole, that's like a faith crisis. That's like a mini yeah. faith crisis. Because the whole world, oh, yeah. Ah! yeah. And then you're like, oh, that's okay. What so happens. Now yeah. I'm back. Now I'm back into this. I'm back into this reality. So <laughs> I think that's, I think that's our, how we are experiencing reality personally. Yeah. Um, I, I'm so excited about what's coming out around dimensions and that what you said about time and space, maybe not being the act, but consciousness being, that sounds really rad to me. I think it's really fascinating that that's coming out at the same time. That the Pentagon is like, yeah, there are aliens here. They're actually interdimensional beings. Isn't that crazy? And we, have, and we have biologics and we have aircraft, right? So, so I suspect that I, I suspect that there are that that interdimensional travel is possible. That we can that there are more layers of realities on top of our own that are here that we just can't observe or interact with. And you know, I I. I even like, I even like believing in like uh, interstellar travel. Like I, I would imagine, I would hope like if I were to, to the belief that I like to play with is that life is a cosmic imperative that wherever stars are, life thrives, right? Life just exists and it continues to exist and it continues to spread. And so I really hope that we are just enmeshed in this intergalactic reality that's just teeming with life. And I really think it would be cool if we could travel to those places. And I suspect that if we did, it probably wouldn't be through like space travel. It would probably be through interdimensional travel. The point isn't really to go out. The point is to kind of go in and then go through dimensions. I think you might be muted because I, I can't hear you. Yeah, the scientists on the front end of this conversation are, are, you know, we all grew up watching Star Wars and Star Trek and you think like, I'll just get on a spaceship and fly through space. And uh, what is almost assuredly more likely is that whatever, and again, we're talking crazy here. Yeah. 
but we're not because we are at a moment in time, as you point out, that the government, not just in the United States, but in other countries is beginning to have conversations around how everybody has alien spacecraft. They're trying to um, reverse engineer the technology and there's sort of a race going on behind the scenes to see who gets there first because whoever does that rules this world. Totally. Yep. And the argument from the scientist on the front end of this is that uh, rather than thinking in terms of like Star Trek, you get on a ship and you fly through space, what they're saying actually happens is that um, time and space can be manipulated, can be bent. You would you mm -hmm. essentially wrap time and space on itself and you can then go from point A to point B instantaneously. Right, like that. Yeah, and, and hence you don't have to worry about flying into stars or debris or asteroids or right, or taking 30,000 years to get somewhere. Yeah. Instantaneous. So I'm, I'm excited about that. That, that makes me really happy and, and then, scared and kind of scared. Like it's yeah. kind of a brave new world. Right. Um, yeah. I also sort of think too, like I really, it's on, on the nature of reality. I, I think that there are, there are beings, <clears throat> there are beings that are, that are bigger than us that we've forgotten about. And we uh, are, and we're, we're, we're harming to our detriment. Let me explain what I mean by that. Um, I, I really love the way that the Greeks in ancient Greek mythology dealt with the natural world because they would assign, they would anthropomorphize, they would assign godlike identities to forces of nature, like the sea or the rain. And one of them was Gaia, right? <clears throat> And I, I believe that <clears throat> Gaia is the sum total of life on earth, right? It's all, if, if you imagine, if you think about like earth, isn't just a habitable planet, right? Earth didn't just, it's not just because earth happened to exist where it is that earth can be habitable. Life made it habitable, right? Life started deep down in our oceans and it created a byproduct of oxygen that rose up and bubbled to the surface, which created an atmosphere that then plants could come out onto. And then those plants broke down the rocks up there into a dirt and a topsoil that allowed more complex plants to come. And that allowed more complex animals. And that eventually allowed us. So that is all one, one organism, right? That is one yeah. being that exists on our planet. And uh, I like to call it Gaia. Cause that's, that's a fun, that's, that's a, that's a nice, cool Greek word. And, and I think that, I think that there's elements of reality that are that, that we really need to understand that as humans, um, we have such a myopic view about what reality is and it centers on us and we are not the most important thing in creation. Gaia has cycled through hundreds and thousands of iterations of life and she will cycle through us without batting an eyelash. She might be a little bit sad because I think that she does think that we're cute, but she will cycle through us just like she cycled through the dinosaurs, just like she cycled through thousands and millions of species on this planet. And, and I think that that is, um, that makes me feel kind of humble and small and it makes me feel really grateful to, uh, to a being that's older and far more vast and so different from me, right? It's that's such a different being than I am, but it is a being, 
right? It does exist. And I think that, you know, we've, as a species over the last hundred years, we've really, um, we have pissed her off and she is not happy with us. Yeah, we've turned into, we've gone from being just another species on this planet to sort of being like a virus or a plague, you know? Um, and I look at religion, Christianity in particular, has this narrative that we, or you know, when Christ came into the world and that we came into the world, and it sort of makes us separate from the world. But as you're pointing out, and I've, I've said it a bunch on this podcast, people will know probably what I'm about to say, but Eckhart Tolle is saying like, we are the universe expressing itself as a human for a little while. Yeah. It's this idea that we came out of the world. Yes. We are, we are the world showing up as a different form of awareness, but we're still part of that same creature as you're pointing to. I think, I think one of the harms that religion has done is that it's sabotaged the um, intrinsic wisdom that we sort of would have had if religion didn't sabotage us, like we just yeah, naturally it, it come cut to us it. off. It cut us off from our mother. Mm -hmm. Our mother is the earth. That's where we, and, and I, I mean that very literally, right? Like mm -hmm. we crawled out of the dirt of this earth. Yeah. And we are crawling back into the dirt of this earth. And, and uh, I think that if you, if you really sit with that, right? Like I had a, I had a, a moment, um, I think we'll maybe talk about this a little bit later too, because we're we'll talk about ritual. But a big a big new ritual that I've and ceremony that I've in, introduced into my life is Burning Man. And when I was at Burning Man last year, I've gone two years now. When I was at Burning Man last year, I had this really profound moment of just sitting on the dirt of the playa, which is just the most. It's the most bare, like the it's the most bare, sparse, like nothing's gone. It's it feels very temple-y. Like temple in the best sense of strip away everything that doesn't matter so that you can see, right? And I'm sitting there in the dirt. I'm covered in dirt. I'm butt-ass naked. And I'm just here with earth. And I'm like, oh my God, this earth is alive. Like it's alive. And I came from this earth and my ancestors came from this earth. And for hundreds of thousands of years, this earth has been supporting and caring and like it's been, we've been walking on this earth and it's been holding us up. And, um, and then I just felt this overwhelming grief for what we've done to her because she has been so generous and giving and loving. And we have just, we have raped her. We have, we have exploited her with no thought to sustainability, with no thought to what she wants with no thought to what future generations might need. We just looked at something and we said, that's awesome. I get to have all of it. And I think that was a mistake. And I think we're paying for that right now. I think that's why climate change is happening is because that is what happens when you fuck with Gaia is that Gaia is like, well, fuck you. Yeah. The world yeah, it, is it, now on it, fire. Yeah, it doesn't keep getting, to, you know, it doesn't keep going along like the 1980s, that's for sure. No. Um, in the early Christian narrative, there's this Garden of Eden story where uh, the tree of life, the tree of knowledge of good and evil, I'll, I'll say it that way, the tree of knowledge of good and evil sits in the middle of the garden, and Adam and Eve are told not to partake of it. And when, and by the way, I deeply, I resonate. I don't know what the original author meant. 
But I resonate deeply with this idea that that fruit will change your consciousness when you partake of it. Mm -hmm. So if I reach up and grab the fruit and I eat it, it is a conscious altering tool. It is a psychedelic drug of some sort. It changed Adam and Eve's awareness. Again, I don't believe the story to be literal, but it changed their awareness. It made them understand good from evil. It increased their ability to comprehend this complex world. Mm -hmm. And I, and, and then when they took it, there's all the religious shame for doing so. Like, don't, don't take the thing that wakes you up. <laughs> don't take the, don't take the drug. <clears throat> Stay right. away. It's there. I put it there, but just it's, it's not to be tampered with. Um, I, I resonate a lot with that story in terms of psychedelics. I really think that religion was trying to scare the hell out of us in taking a conscious altering tool. Yeah. And, um, and you can sort of, you know, make that connection. I'm, I'm, I'm sure you're familiar with Terrence McKenna and the Stone Date theory. Yeah. When mm-hmm. I did ayahuasca, I experienced. I, did, I didn't know Terrence McKenna. I didn't know the Stone Date theory. And for five hours, I experienced for the first time Stone Date theory under ayahuasca. It was shown to me. I, I mm-hmm. shared the consciousness with a ancient ancestor primate, I, and it, to me, it was visually an orangutan, uh, not an orangutan. Sorry, a chimpanzee, and. Uh, I was, and he was me. We were together wow. that whole night. And, Ooh, uh, that's so cool. I, I woke up in the morning looking and everybody that was in the group with us, they, as I'm telling them what I'm, what I've learned this night, some of the folks were getting phones out and recording me talking and they were just so interested in this concept. None of mm-hmm. us had heard of Terrence McKenna before I get up the next morning and I start looking up some of the ideas that I had invented in my head. I, and, and I learned that I wasn't the one who invented them. They were invented before me. And I, then it I struck me that Terrence McKenna almost certainly learned the same information under a conscious altering experience as well. Right. Yeah. Cause he was famous for delving into psychedelics. Um, I say all that to say um, conscious altering tools seem to be deeply helpful to almost all of us. There are and I want to preface this converse, part of the conversation by saying that there are folks who are adversely affected by taking psychedelic substances and can even end up with serious mental breakdowns. Mm-hmm. And so anyone thinking about or about to take a conscious altering tools should really put a lot of time and energy into that. It may go well for 99% of people, but for the 1% it doesn't, it goes really bad. So I say all that to say psychedelics seem to be an incredible tool that the world is starting to soften up to and relinquish control of and allowing us to interact with those things without being criminal, without Mm -hmm. being taboo, without being judged or feeling shame. Your thoughts on conscious altering tools on psychedelics and your experience with those. Yeah, I I would just say first off that psychedelics saved my life. Like psychedelics Mm. enabled me to, to move through trauma and to understand generational patterns of trauma in, in like that. And that was it. it, I, I was able to work through things that probably would have taken years in therapy to really uncover. I was able to just see it. And, and I think that that really is the power of, of psychedelics. And then I would also maybe, I want, I want to talk, because I want to share some experiences on them. And I, I'd also want to maybe just offer a frame for people as they're thinking about using, because again, these are tools, right? 
Humans make tools. That's what we do. And we're really fucking good at it. And psychedelics are a really, really powerful tool because they allow you to see, again, we're going back to the simulation, right? We're living in a myth of our own creation and psychedelics can come in and they can change the way that you see reality. And sometimes you can take things back with you. Um, the caution that I would maybe just to add to yours that some people like definitely some people are adversely affected. And I would also say that you need to have psychedelics are what I would call like a peak experience, right? They're a big blowout, powerful. Like if you do ayahuasca or LSD or magic mushrooms, you'll have a powerful experience. And that needs to be grounded with some kind of of like reality, again, like based practice. So I'm doing, when I did psychedelics, I'm also doing therapy, right? And I'm doing, and I'm doing therapy with a therapist who knows about psychedelics. Um, Often I'm working with someone, if I can, who is, uh, who's licensed for that, because these are powerful substances and you've got to, you've got to be, you've got to honor them, right? You've got to respect what they can do, because if you don't, you can end up in a place that maybe you don't want to be in, or maybe you're not prepared for, mm. right? I've had, I've never had what I would call a bad psychedelic trip, mm. but I have had some gnarly, awful, intense experiences on psychedelics. And for me, that was part of the point because I was, I was prepared because I knew that I was going in to meet a shadow or to, to face a dragon. And so rather than run away from that, I embraced it. And I was like, awesome. I'm so glad that you're here. Um, what do you got for me? Like, why, why are you in me? And then you can start to understand. And, and so, um, yeah, I think that, I think that psychedelics are a, just a really, a really potent and powerful tool. And, um, you know, one of the, one of the most powerful experiences that I think that I had on, on psychedelics, um, I was able to go to a, a really cool place, um, it was a, a, a forest and there was a lot of kind of interconnected trees. And I did, um, I did eight grams of magic mushrooms. So I did a hero's mm-hmm. dose. I did a, a shit. hero's dose plus three. Yeah. Okay. And, uh, <laughs> and, and it was wild. Like it, 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 I was looping. It threw me, it, it felt like a, it felt like a little kind of like a hard reset of my nervous system. And when I came, some people call that an ego death, right? When I came back online, Suddenly what I saw was um, the ways in which my family's energy had been saying no to life for generations. And I chose to say yes. Mm. So my family had been like, I suddenly saw that there was all of this energy that wanted to come into me that wanted to flow through me, that wanted to sustain me and give me everything that I needed and then allow me to just spread that energy into the world. And I realized that I'd been saying no to a lot of that. And all I had to do was say yes. And that energy started to move through me again. And I mean, that's a realization that uh, changed my life, right? It changed the way that I interact with my environment. It changed the way I interact with my family, with my children, with my friends, um, because I'm, I'm realizing, and it, and it's, it's all, it's almost hard to describe because it's not just an intellectual realization. It was also physical. 
I could feel physically in my body what being closed meant, what being in no meant. And I could feel physically what it meant to be open. And so I could actually practice then with closed and open so I could start to develop a habit of being a little bit more open physically, spiritually, emotionally. And when you do that, when you're, when you approach life more openly, all kinds of magic shit starts happening because other people have things to grab onto, right? Others, other people's energy can flow through you. You could, your approach because you're vibrant and you're alive. You're not like walking around like this, right? Which is kind of how we're, we're taught to walk mm. around as Mormons is to be really closed because we don't want to be deceived and we don't want to be seduced. And we don't want to be, we don't want any of those bad things to happen. And you, and you got to put on the facade so that you look good, so that you set a good missionary example for that system. So you put your white shirt on, you put your tie, you put your dress, right? But, and you smile, but let's not let anybody into our real inner world. But we're a shell, right? Yeah. We're a shell and inside we're screaming, right? Yeah. And so, um, yeah, those are, those are, and then, and then beyond that, you know, um, uh, it's really fun to, to get, uh, to get a little altered on some psychedelics and look at paintings because mm. they do cool shit. They breathe and move. Yeah, They breathe and move. And when, and then you're starting and you're like, Oh yeah, that's all of us. Right. There's what I, what I, one of the things I really love about the psychedelic experience. It's sort of, everything sort of stays still and moves at the same time. Yeah. Yeah. And everything, <laughs> everything kind of softens, like all the edges get a little blurry and that's why that's why it's important to have good containers and good and good you know someone someone who's leading it that's that's experienced, but because you want to make sure that that everyone's safe. But having the edges of life sort of soften, what it shows you is that a lot of those edges, a lot of those boundaries, we invented, and we could invent different edges and boundaries if we wanted to. So much of this world that we live in, like we're living in our own create it like individual simulation collectively we'll, we're all creating the simulation and so much of that simulation is constructed it's not real we invent it because we all choose to believe it right mm -hmm. and so the cool thing that psychedelics kind of does is it, it it turns that off and it says it offers you this invitation which is what would you create here instead mm -hmm. and that is a really fun question to answer because uh, there's a lot about the world that could be better. Yeah. Yeah. Like there is progress and the world in lots of ways is better than it was 25 years ago. And in other ways it's worse. And the more awareness, and again, psychedelics along the lines, of what you said, psychedelics for me opened up awareness to parts of the outside world and inner world that either others had blinded me to or that i had blinded myself to mm. and then i take these substances and you know 45 minutes later i'm forced to step outside my own way of seeing the world and i and as you point offered an invitation i'm offered a chance to see the world not as the way i see the world yeah and and i and there's so many insights so many so that many. like you they have, they were, you know, you said it saved your life. I don't, I wouldn't say it saved my life, but it drastically, significantly altered my life for the better. Mm. Um, I could now begin to 
sense why I and why others in the outside world did things, did the things they did, why they did them, why we are the way we are. You started off with the thing in the very first line of the podcast today where you said something about what happened to you. Mm -hmm. And uh, I I can't remember what the guy's last name is. His first name, I think, is Bruce, but he wrote a book with Oprah Winfrey. It might be Bruce Perry, but um, he wrote a book with Oprah Winfrey titled What Happened to You? Because often we see people do unhealthy things and we go, why did they do that? And the better question is what happened to you? Mm. Because that explains why we are what we are. Right. Yeah. Um, well, I wanna, and on, on that, ahead. just, just a, a, another, mm-hmm. another addition, right? Like um, a, another really powerful insight, right. To just kind of put some, cause you can get lots of insights on, on psychedelics and, and just maybe solidify that for the, the listeners. Um, one of the insights that another insight that was really powerful for me on that was the realization that I, I very vividly saw the cycles of generational trauma mm. that existed in my family. Mm. And, and what that did is it did two things for me. Number one, it made it made it so easy to forgive all of the members of my family who had harmed me. Because right, I because like, someone had harmed them because I could someone had harmed them I could see that cycle yeah. and it was like there, not only not only was it, it and it was almost like it's it's even I don't know that forgive is the right word because it's not what I did is I was just like oh that wasn't about me that wasn't directed at me that was this thing that went back general like thousands of years potentially working its way through my family line like that. Right. So it did that. It gave me this really profound sense of, of forgiveness. And it also strengthened my boundary against my, against people who would do that to me mm-hmm. because what it said, because what that showed me is, Oh my God, no, I totally get why you're doing that. I see where that's coming from. I have no personal animosity towards you and there is no way in hell I'm going to accept that energy into my system. Because, mm. because that is not mine and that's not yours either. Right. So it simultaneously let me forgive people who had wronged me and put rock solid boundaries against those people to prevent them from harming me further. And yeah. to have those boundaries grounded, not in rage, not in like, I hate you, but grounded in, I will not allow you to inflict your Shit, bullshit generational pattern that's just churning inside of yeah. you onto me. Gross. Yeah. Why would I do that? I love it. The, let's talk about boundaries for a moment. It's It's been in the last five years that I've understood the same thing you're pointing to, which is uh, trauma is inevitable. A woman giving birth to a child, both parties incur trauma. We can't get through this world without it. It, it, it simply is going to happen the nature of survival and the chaos of this planet. Um, even as much as we've done to sort of step off of the food chain, which I think is so crazy on its own. Um, but trauma is going to happen. And as you point out, if we go back far enough, and again, I, I know sometimes that certain species didn't live at the same time as others, but if we, as an analogy, if human beings go out one day to hunt and one of them has a really close call with a saber toothed tiger, and he, he almost loses his life and he gets back to the cave with his family. 
and he got a short temper and he and he hits his kid for mouth and off whatever it is you as you point out doesn't make it right but you can start to sense how going back far enough we humans have felt things we didn't want to feel we incurred things we did not want to incur and our way of dealing with it is letting off that steam on the next person mm-hmm. um and, and that likely happened before humans had developed prefrontal cortexes to stop inhibit them from doing the thing that they're feeling. So it, yeah, probably, other primates. it was just, it wasn't even like a thought. Like I'm, it was just like, I I'm stressed. There was a tiger. Now I'm safe. Fuck you kid. Yeah. Right. Like that is the most impersonal thing. And then, but then that fuck you kid energy just keeps cycling through generations and generations and generations until my dad does it to me. And then I'm like, why did you do that to me? You didn't do that to me. That was done to Gorg 200,000 years ago. Yeah. Yeah. That energy has to keep moving. It moves into us and then moves out of us and how we handle that. To me too, like I think that also that 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 energy that energy is physical, right? So I I think that we actually carry in our bodies rage and pain and mm. sorrow going feel back it right now. generations, right? Yeah. So I think that as as conscious, this is part of my spirituality too, right? As conscious adults, we have to find ways to purge that energy. Yeah. I think that psychedelics are actually a pretty great tool. Sometimes psychedelics can purge a lot of stuck energy. I also have this right here. This is my anger bag, this thing right here, my Mm. anger table and my anger bag. And I've got these sticks and it's a bag of rice. And I have a regular practice where I will beat the shit out of that bag. And I will yell as loud as I can. Yeah. Because that energy's in me and it's got to move. It's got to come out. I'm carrying that for my ancestors. And um, if I don't purge that, it's going to come out in unconscious ways on people that I don't want it to come out on. And it's going to continue to cycle through our system. Yeah. The act that you're doing, by the way, it, the act that you're doing, um, again, forget the story we have for it. It's the same sort of expression of energy as hitting somebody, as right. arguing and screaming at somebody, as belittling someone, right. except that you're exercising that energy in a way that doesn't hurt anyone. Doesn't it just be it hurts that rice? Hurts that rice. And the other thing that I really like about it too, the energy really that's being exercised there is this energy going back to we're kind of shifting into talking about boundaries. It's that energy of boundary, right? Because really the energy of Korg when he hit his kid, what Korg was really doing there is that he felt unsafe. Mm-hmm. He felt so profoundly unsafe when that tiger jumped out at him. And he, and so rage came up and, but it wasn't quite, but that was still in there. And so the thing that he pushed into his kid, what it was is a, a a boundary that needed to be set, right? Because Korg almost got eaten by a tiger. That's a pretty fucking big deal. Yeah. And so um, what I've noticed as I've started doing this is that it, it's, it's sort of this practice. It's actually expanded my ability to set boundaries because if I can go ape shit, right? Literally. On and I this, can, right? On this bag, <laughs> and I can, yeah. I can go batshit crazy on this. I, I couldn't used to, cause I was like, cause I was Mormon and I was all nice and I would never yell and I would never know. I can go batshit motherfucking crazy on this bag. And what that means now is that now when I just say no in real life, 
that no has the weight of my crazy. So it's actually gotten me being able to purge the energy, the, that rage and that boundary energy and to channel it and to practice it. It's made it so that it's really easy for me to set boundaries in my life because I know there's literally that the, the, the realization that, that changed for me with boundaries was the realization that no one can force me to do anything that I don't want to do. Mm. Because I always have the option to go batshit crazy. Right. That's that option is always on the table. It's always right? on the table. Yeah. And so what that means then, but I mean, with consequences, right? If yeah. I go batshit crazy, totally. there will be consequences, but that's within, that's a choice that I'm able to make. And so that means is now that I'm, uh, now that I'm faced with this thing that I don't like, I then have to, I have to make a choice. And the choice that I make is, okay, do I do this thing that I don't want to do? Do I go batshit crazy? Or is there somewhere in the middle where I can find something that works, right? Can I just not speak to this person anymore, right? Can I just block this person? Can I just tell this person verbally, I don't like it when you do this. It makes me feel this way. In the future, I would like you to do this or I would have to do this, right? That's just setting a verbal boundary. And so there's all of these really powerful ways that we can control our energy and control our space and, and dictate to people how they interact with us. But it, it sort of has to begin, I think, with a sense of it's I'm, I'm in charge of me and I get to decide what happens to me. I am a sovereign, power, sovereign powerful being and nobody gets access to me. Nobody gets my time or my energy or my resources, or my attention without my consent. To, to hit on for a second, and we'll, we'll continue here on boundaries, but to hit on for a second, you mentioned purging. Um, in the ayahuasca experience I had, everybody was given a bucket, and everyone at, at one point or, at, or another in the night, and, and often most of us threw up often. Yeah. And they didn't call it throwing up. They didn't call it puking. They called it purging. And, and I distinctly remember that experience that night and everyone else in this in that room would have told you the same thing. There were certain moments in the night where certain music played by the shaman called four or five people at a time in the room to throw up. Interesting. And I remember holding my bucket and I'm, I'm heaving into it. It's not pleasant. All of us, you know, anytime you've had the flu or not feel good, you're throwing up, you, no one likes it, but there was a part of me that liked it. Mm -hmm. I, I was very in tune and everyone else in the room was too, that this act of throwing up was getting rid of something that needed to be gotten rid of. And whether the purging literally was throwing up something or whether it was the brain telling the body like, Hey, we're letting this go. Yeah. And I can't even exactly tell you what it was. I let go. I just know that from that moment forward, I've been a different human being yeah. with less shit inside stored up. Um, totally. I emptied the bowl out. And I've started over, at least in part. I, I think that we are carrying stuff in our bodies, literally. Like we are literally, we know that we store trauma in our bodies. Mm -hmm. And we know that we there's a thing called generational trauma where it gets passed on generationally. Mm -hmm. So I really believe that we are carrying trauma in our bodies that is not only is it not ours, it might not be, have been ours for generations, right? So we sometimes, sometimes we try, this is why, this is why I think that 
you have to have, we, we went super hard talk therapy for a while. And now we're sort of, we're reintroducing the body back. And that's why I think you have to have both is that I think that there are energies that are in your body that you don't actually need to talk about. You just need to purge because mm. they're not yours. So you could go down this rabbit hole of trying to figure out why is it like, what is the thing that's connected to this thing right here? And why do I feel that? Or you could just move that thing. Your body could just move that thing because it might not even be yours. It might not even be your mom's. It might be your great, great grandmother's. And it's just like living in your kidney. That's a great point because, um, you know, when they took uh, soldiers with PTSD and gave them uh, MDMA, Molly, under therapeutic setting, you know, they would take the, the Molly three different times, talk with the therapist for a little bit. But rather than all these, ther you know, all you know, rather than years and years of therapy, they had three sessions. And when those three sessions were over, again, I remember, I can't remember what the exact number was, but 76% or something had no more PTSD mm -hmm. uh, when it was over because they had disconnected their narrative about what this all meant from the actual hurt that happened, yes. which is exactly what you're pointing to. The moment you separate them, it's not about you anymore. It's, right. it's something that happened to you and you don't need to carry it. You need to shake it off, right? Like animals, yeah. if you yeah. animals don't, like if you've ever seen other mammals, when they get stressed, I take my dog pig to the dog park, right? She's a like an almost two-year-old puppy. She's adorable. All the other dogs want to eat her up because they just love her so much. And so sometimes they'll like come at her and in, in a way that makes her feel uncomfortable. And she'll kind of, she'll be like, rah, rah, rah. She'll, bat, she'll, she'll bark them off. And then what does she do? She, her whole body shakes. Yeah. She shakes it off. And all of that stuff goes away. And we don't shake as humans, right? No, we, we tell stories about it. tell stories. We're like, oh, that meant this and that meant this. No, you don't know. You don't fucking know. Remember, yeah. you're living in an upside down simulation with a hole in it. Yeah. So you don't know. Shake it off, right? Find, get some kind of, definitely like do talk therapy, figure out, figure out the mental model of your, of your brain and find a physical release to the trauma and stress that lives in your body and do that regularly. Because if you do, you'll just move a whole bunch of energy that you don't even have to look at, right? You don't actually have to examine all of the shitty things that happened in your life. You don't have to remember every bad thing that happened in your family line. You can just shit and get off the pot and it's yeah. done. It's, it's the reason they have these uh, rooms where you can take baseball bats and just beat the shit out of stuff. Right. Um, you know, at our local axe throwing place, they've got one of these, uh, one of these rooms and you pay 40 bucks and you get a baseball bat and go in there and beat the shit out of old televisions and computers and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, move it through you. Yeah. I love this, by the way. By the way, I'm loving this conversation. I think this is. Yeah, we're having this fun. Is, yeah, this is good. Um, let's spend, I'll have you out of here by noon if that's okay. Perfect. Um, let's wrap up here with maybe two different areas to kind of go into. And I, I want to say boundaries in the last five years. One of the things I've also learned about boundaries is I, I got enough clarity in my own head to stop placing blame on others for what my own discomfort about the outer world is. I, I used perfect. to always be like, kids, you're making too much noise. Shut the hell up. Mm -hmm. And now I'm like, oh, I'm uncomfortable with noise. That's not anyone else's fault. 
Yes. I can do something to get myself away from this chaos, or I can learn to just sit still in the midst of it. So I, I want to get your thoughts. Anything else you want to say on boundaries in terms of in terms of people you love who just don't mesh, their humanity just doesn't mesh with yours. Mm-hmm. So so often boundaries are a way to um, protect yourself while also getting as much human connection with the people you love as possible. And boundaries also, I also want to ask, boundaries are also a great thing to place on myself. And meaning totally. that I don't show up in a situation um, uh, bumped into, I always use this terminology that things in the world bump into me. I got bumped into, I got nicked. Mm. And that nick feels like chaos, it's discomfort, it it causes fight or flight, fear, fawn, all that bullshit response, lizard brain stuff. It it doesn't feel desirable. Um, it, it it hurts. And often I want to manipulate the outside world to make me feel better. And I'm learning in the last five years to place boundaries on the way I show up in the world so as not to pass that trauma on to someone else. And, and I, I use trauma very lightly here. I don't mean that that's a severe, like getting punched right, in the face, a little, but a little neck. It, yeah. it hurts and it yeah. doesn't feel good. Being a human being is often icky. Yeah. And there's a bunch of things that feel bad. I, yeah. I want to just really like, I love that point about, about boundaries internally with yourself, because that's what I've had to learn as well. Right. When, when, the real, the most powerful boundaries that you can really ever set are what you will and will not allow for yourself. And then it's about what you will do about it. Right. So being able to say, oh, and what that forces you to do is that actually forces you to think about what do I need to feel good in this world? Mm. Right. So for you, maybe some quiet space, Right. And so the boundaries don't have to be negative. The boundaries can also be creative. They can also be what you want, how you want people to show up and interact with you. Right. How you're welcoming that energy into your life. Um, so I, I, I love that. And then I also think on, on the on the question of, you know, boundaries with with loved ones and maybe with people that they just they're they're they they their lives just don't mesh well with yours. I I truly believe that no one deserves access to your energy or attention unless it's good for you. So I, I don't have relationships in my life that are not good for me. And I have no problem setting a boundary with some, I've, I've even done, I've even unfortunately had to do this with people who have been in my life for quite a while and just the dynamic shifted and suddenly they were not good for me anymore. And for me to be able to, and it, and it takes some courage. It takes a real, a real sense of that I'm worth it, but we are worth it, right? Every, nobody, nobody should have to interact with people that make them uncomfortable, that make them feel bad, that make them feel gross. And it's, and you don't have to, you can say, look, go live your life in the best possible way, but do, but this is my line and healthy people will respect that. And if they don't respect your boundary, 
that's a really, that's a rude thing to do, right? It's, it's also a sign that you probably set the right boundary. It's probably a sign that you set the right <laughs> boundary, right? So if somebody freaks out about like, I, and I, and I think this is really important for a post-Mormon crowd as well, because in Mormonism, our boundaries were violated oh, with Sabaton. such abhorrent, like, uh, frequency. Yeah. And, and like, I love, I don't remember who said this, but, but when they said it, it just clicked for me. And it's this idea that what they said was there are no boundaries in Mormonism. There are no boundaries that a spiritual leader cannot override. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And, and safe boundaries are interpreted as unsafe. They're taught to you as unsafe. Uh, unsafe boundaries are taught to you as safe boundaries. Yeah. You know, to the point where as a, you know, a 10 year old kid, you go behind closed doors with a grown man who's just happens to be the accountant two blocks in your away from your house. Right. And he's um, going to ask you about if you touch yourself. Right. And, and in no place in the world would we step outside of that uh, setting and go that, I think I'm, I think I'm cool with that. That's a great idea. Yeah. That's, <laughs> there's no way that that goes. An wrong. untrained stranger man should sit with my 10 year old kid and ask him sexual questions. Yeah. That's a, yeah. So, 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 so Mormons are really bad at boundaries. We really suck at them. And so, so I would just say, if you're, if you're listening to this, um, and you're and you're Mormon or you're ex-Mormon or you're somewhere along that journey. Um, there is probably no boundary that you can set that is too hard or too strong. You're gonna go in the opposite direction. So you're and and setting boundaries at first is gonna make you feel mean. It's gonna make you feel uh, unworthy. It's gonna make you feel selfish. And I just want to really. I just want to like really encourage you to lean into those feelings and to continue setting those boundaries because you have been so stripped away. Like you have been so stripped away of all of the protective things. Humans need healthy boundaries, right? This just happened to me like yesterday. I was texting around. I was, I'm trying to promote a show and I text this one person and we've had sort of a, we've had a very friend, friend, friendly relationship, but we're not like close, right? And she, she's kind of a high profile person. And so I texted her and I was just like, I, I, I just kind of said what I was saying to people that I had kind of close relationships with that I had emotional capital with. And when I did that with her, I didn't have really any emotional capital with her. And so she set a boundary with me immediately. She was like, I love you and I support you but you have to put more thought and consideration into reaching out to me. I am not just here to help you out whenever you want me to. And I was like, oh my God, thank you. Thank you for that very healthy boundary that just put me, I got all up and in her space without her permission. That was rude of me. And she popped me right back out of that. And then, and I was like, oh my God, I'm so sorry. And then she's like, we're all good. You're fine. But what that told me was right now I know that person has good boundaries that I need to interact with that person in a certain way, or I will not be successful interacting with that person. And we all have that right mm. to tell other people how they need to act in order to get the gift of our attention and presence. Mm. I love it. Beautiful. Beautiful. Um, Let's move kind of, we've got a few minutes left here, maybe 20 minutes or so. Um, I definitely want to get into sexuality. Uh, for five years, I mean, again, being a Mormon, I was told in, in 
subtle, subversive ways, and some of them very explicit, but much of it implicit, much of it subtle and subversive. I was told what my sexuality should look like, mm-hmm. what what um, I was told what uh, an adult life had, to, what parameters that had to be within. I was told, um, I'm trying to think of a good way to explain this, but there are issues of morality, which is really belief system created. Like, I believe God is okay with this and not okay with that. And so these things are okay and these things aren't. But there's so much, so much problems with my own rational ideas of, of morality. And religion agrees with me that God seems to have done a shitty job of setting a morality because religion itself is picking and choosing and discarding and wrapping its hands around some rules get discarded. For instance, you know, the Bible says uh, if, if you're raped, your dad can go to the rapist and the rapist can pay him a certain amount of money. And then you're obligated to marry your rapist. And somewhere along the way we went, "Mm, we probably shouldn't let God be the, the imposer of that rule anymore. We're going to discard God's rule. And and we come up with our own logic. That, that was never God's rule to begin with. Mm-hmm. Well, if the moment you step into that space, I'm going to have a conversation about how did you decide which ones were and which ones weren't. So, but but ethics to me is different. Ethics is my own kind of internal, weighed by the experts, um, weighed in on by the experts. And um, I take into consideration the data and the science of all of these issues as much as possible. But I'm inside myself going like, that's not right to do to somebody. That hurt them unnecessarily. That traumatized them uh, unnecessarily. Um, I, I don't need to do things that make me feel better if such doing such hurts somebody else. And when it comes to sex, we were given so many rules about how we navigate yeah. that. Um, I, I was never taught consent. When I was in school, I've, I've learned consent on my own. I've chosen in spite of my religion, claiming to be the one true church on the earth. It intentionally didn't even teach me consent because it abuses consent all the time. And it doesn't want you to know. I want you to know. No. So once you deconstruct religion, sorry, it takes a minute to sort of set up these questions at times. So the moment you deconstruct religion, and as you point out, like now, you know, fuck religion, I'm going to take into account science. I'm going to take into account data. I'm going to I'm going to open up myself that I could be wrong about everything. Let me investigate the world like it's brand new again. I'm going to take every piece, take it apart. I'm going to examine it and only the stuff that works and it's good and it's right. Am I going to put back? Sex seems to be one of the biggest issues for somebody who lived their life in a high demand fundamentalist religion. Totally. And is trying to show up now having deconstructed all that show up now being authentic being your best healthiest self and you have to run up against all of these man-made rules that were given to you and to some degree for good reason because those rules are meant to keep us from infringing on other people in really tender spaces in other words if you're not mature if you're not wise if you're not grounded you're not self-aware. These rules around sexuality that religion gives us are probably good. 
Because if you're not prepared to make really conscientious choices about how you're going to live your sexual life, you're probably better off living in the small box of religion's rules. So once you step outside of those rules, once you develop the self-awareness and the wisdom, the groundedness inside to be able to, in ethical ways, deconstruct and then reconstruct a new framing of sexuality, what would be your thoughts on that process and where you've sort of ended up? Yeah, so I have a ton of thoughts uh, about this um, and I love the way you set up the question. So I, I think I want to start with, I want to start with maybe like a, a little bit of a sexual biography for me. And the reason I want to start there is that I think that it illustrates, it illustrates kind of why I wanted to do the things that I wanted to do. And then ultimately what I've learned from that journey. So um, uh, Mormonism is a sex negative religion, meaning that it views sex as something that's bad. And when you grow no, up, Mormons are going to argue with you. Mormons are going to go, they're going to go, no, 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 no. It just has its time and place. And, uh, and God's given us these constructs to protect us. Right. Um, what would you say to that before we dive in? I would say you are in a cult. You need to leave. You don't actually understand what you're talking about <laughs> because, because there's, there is a view, there's a worldview out here that's called sex positivity. And, and, and this is what I've found, right? So sex positivity, if I could break it down the most simply, what it says is sex doesn't cause harm. Lying causes harm. Force causes harm. Manipulation causes harm. Dehumanization causes harm. There are all of these things that can happen to sex that cause harm, but the harm is not caused by sex. Sex is good. Full stop. It's not good sometimes. It's not good in the right conditions. It's not good if you have a super old man that you just met wave his magical hands over you while you're dressed like, you know, uh, fucking spiritual bakers in a Mormon space castle. It's all, it's always good. It is the generative life force yeah. of this universe. Yeah. It is our creative and, and uh, most powerful asset, right? When I'm tuned into my sexuality, I'm, I'm fucking everything. And that doesn't mean that I'm putting my dick in everything. What that means is I am engaged in the generative creative world with my full body, right? And, um, and so I think that's kind of the framework, right? So I, I grew up in this very sex negative culture. I'm taught we, we were super extreme, right? You weren't supposed to kiss before you were married because there was this idea that that was giving a part of yourself away, right? This is the virginity idea, right? This idea that if you have sex, you've given a part of your, that's gross. In our scriptures, right? You, the, the, the daughters of the Lamanites are raped and they have their virtue taken from them. Yeah. yeah. That's not, well, in, in that context, yeah, great. Don't rape is bad, but we don't, but people can't lose their virtue because of something that lose. happens to them. Right. And you can't, and also kissing someone like we have this lick cupcake thing, right? Yeah. Bullshit. Humans are not cupcakes. When you lick a human, it just gets better. The more times <laughs> that a human is licked, the better that human feels. Yeah. The more times a human is fucked, the better that human feels. 
We know this. We have a physiological again need. under healthy constraints, not not healthy as in religious rules, but healthy as in consensual, non-manipulative, non-abusive. I I want this to happen. I'm yeah. tuned into my body. I feel the erotic energy of my body, and I want to do something right. Yeah. And I think that it's really really important for us to move away from the idea that sex is taking a penis and putting it inside of a, of a vagina, because that is a purity culture, virginity mindset that's trying to bar behavior, that's trying to control behavior. And what that does is it reduces an incredibly complex and an incredibly lovely and an incredibly long and wide spectrum of behaviors and activities that you can play and explore in to just one physical action. And it gets people hyper fixated on that because you can have sex and never touch another person. You can have energetic sex with a person. You can have tantric or set or sensual sex with a person, right? You can have sex and not even take your clothes off. You can have sex and take your clothes all the way off, right? Because sex is just the erotic exploration of our erotic energy. Don't leave your socks on. Whatever, whatever you whatever do. Whatever you do, though, yeah, for sure. Don't, don't leave your socks. Don't on. take it all off and leave the socks on. That's and so when I left Mormonism, so my my wife, when I I'm I'm divorced now, but when I was married, my wife was the first person that I'd ever had sex with. She was the second person that I'd ever kissed, and I'd never really done any kind of dating or erotic exploration before that. And I think that that was harmful. I think that was harmful to me. I think that was harmful to her. And it, because it made it so that we didn't really know what was happening. We didn't really understand. There was no education. There was no knowledge. And so we just kind of like tried to figure stuff out. And sometimes things worked and sometimes they didn't. And the crucial thing too, is that we didn't even know what we liked mm -hmm. because you're told this lie when, when sex is bad until you have the right conditions. When you flip that, when you check all the right boxes, then it becomes magically good. What happens is that you don't figure it out and you just go in with nothing. And then you expect once you've checked all those boxes for you to magically be good at sex. And the truth is that no one is magically good at sex because sex, just like everything else that humans do is a skill and you have to learn how to do it and you have to practice it. And so the problem with having a view of sex that's negative and that is bound by all of these rules is that it doesn't give people a framework or a container to play with their sexual energy with themselves and with others in a way that helps them have experiences that helps them figure out what they like. So when I, when I leave Mormonism, um, one of the big things that I have to confront is that there are parts of my life that are not really in alignment with who I really am. And one of those is my marriage. I realize that I don't really want to be married because I don't feel ready to be married because I'm not, because I'm, my development is stunted. In some ways, I'm a, like a 12 or 14 year old boy because I was never allowed to express healthy 12 year old boy sexual energy. And so it never grew into healthy 34 year old male energy, right? And so one of the decisions that I make is I'm, I'm going to, and it's not just for this, there are a number of reasons, but I'm like, I'm, I'm going to leave my marriage. I want to be a single person so that I can explore what works for me. I need to figure out what I like. Mm -hmm. And I really think that 
Um, and this isn't just about sex. I think this is about everything. Mm -hmm. I think that the way that humans learn things is through experience. It's by doing things. And then we reflect on the things that we've done and we, and the things that feel good, we do more of that. And the things that feel bad, we do less of that. And Mormonism and other high demand religions vilify experience. They tell you there are certain experiences that you could have that are sins. And if you do those things, you are unworthy, right? And so, and trust us, take our word for and it. And take our word for it, right? Yeah. Take our word for it that that's the case. Because what, what that means is that you're not allowed to just like, exp and, and, so, and so that also puts this really hard limit, right? Of mm. don't have sex, meaning don't have penis and vagina thing. And so that creates this hyper fixation on this as teenagers. So you're like, I just can't do that. And so the, then you get things like soaking in, in, uh, in Mormon culture, which is just that energy working itself out. And it also denies teenagers and young adults the opportunity to just explore their sexuality in a fun and safe way. Why not instead of telling them, hey, don't do this thing. What if we told them, hey, your sexual and erotic experience is yours. You get to drive it. Here are some tools that will help you do that in a way that's safe. And let's talk about healthy sexual practices. Let's talk about consent. Let's talk about, there are so many ways that we could frame the conversation around sex. And what generally happens is that when you give teenagers permission to have the sex that they want to have, they usually wait. They usually kind of do other things. Maybe they'll, maybe they kind of make out, maybe they get naked together. They can start to play in this erotic space and then they, then they grow into having really powerful sex. So, um, so I was like, I want to be able to, to do that. So I, I very intentionally went out and had, and I'm still kind of in the middle of it. I, I very intentionally went out and had as many experiences as I could. Part of what I wanted to do too, is I wanted to really learn from people who knew what they were doing, because I could also recognize that as a, as a man in Mormonism, stepping into a sexual, like a very free sexual expression, that there were a lot of men doing that in ways that were very toxic and very dangerous and that were harming their partners. And I didn't want to be one of those guys. Mm. Right. So I, um, I, I was like, I'm going to find myself a mentor. So I found a, a dominatrix who lives in Austin. She's a really, she's world renowned. She's a somatic therapist too. So she kind of marries consciousness with kink and it does some, and, and has led on some really, really oh, powerful cool. um, workshops for me. And I went down and I did like some sessions with her. Like I learned how to have erotic collaboration conversations. I learned how to spank people. I learned, and I got to kind of play mm. in this playground of human sexuality that meant that I would try things. And if I liked that thing, and I've, I've tried things and I've been like, ah, I like this thing now. Now this is a part of my, of my sexual, uh, of my sexual play. And then I've tried other things and I've been like, Hmm, no, thanks. That doesn't, that doesn't, that doesn't really work for me. And, and that feels like, that feels like healthy sexuality to me because I'm not harming people. I'm having lovely connections with people. I'm having, th these are, these are people who become friends they become lovers and I'm growing as a person and I don't have to hide behind this wall of shame. I can just be very honest with what I want, which is I want to have a variety of erotic experiences with a lot of interesting and cool partners so that I can start to find the parts of myself that want to be expressed. And what I've noticed 
is that the more that I've played with my sexuality, and I mean that literally, like play, like in the in the sense of I'm going to go play with this. It's not serious. It doesn't have to be dark and scary. It's playful and it's fun. The more I play with it, the more I'm creative in other areas, because that's an that's just an energy center, right? Your sacral chakra is just an energy center, and if that thing is dark and scary and you're afraid of it, then that energy is going to be dark and scary and you're going to be afraid of it. And if that energy is fucking raging in your loins and you're just like burning with the passion for life, that shows up in other areas of your life because we're, we're sexual beings. We are meant, we are designed to be fully expressed, sensual, sexual beings and to express that in just marvelous and delightful and beautiful and creative ways. And Mormonism fucking takes, like it does with everything, it takes this huge, beautiful human thing and it says only this part of it. And why does Mormonism do that? Well, it's because the founder of Mormonism was a sexual predator. And he used his spiritual power and his influence to force people and coerce people into having sex with him that they didn't want to have. And that is evil. That's an evil thing to do. But again, it's not the sex that's evil. It's the coercion. It's the force. It's the fraud, right? That's what's going on there. And so there's, it's no wonder to me that, that Mormonism is so fucked up sexually. Look at where it came from. Totally. Um, what I would say here is, uh, again, the last five years have been just transformative for me. Um, there came a point in my marriage where uh, up until that moment, I had always been wearing a mask. My religious system told me what it meant to be a good human being. And I needed to live in those constraints uh, in order for everyone around me my family, my wife, the, the other believers in my religious system to feel that I am living up to their expectation of me. For them to feel safe being in space with me, I've got to show being a believing Mormon. I got to I got to demonstrate that. I've got to signal that. And so anything going on inside of us that wants to be not what we're told to be is screaming and yelling. It wants so bad to express itself. And there came a point after I deconstruct the religious system, I stepped completely away. My wife and I are having really vulnerable conversations with other human beings that we love and trust who are making it safe to just show up as you are. Mm -hmm. And in the process of doing that, conversations are naturally go to the taboo things that we were never allowed to talk about. Sex being obviously probably the biggest one. Uh, there came a point in my marriage where my wife and I felt safe for the very first time and probably more me than her, where I could just like open up myself and say, I'm not what you've been seeing for 25 years. Mm -hmm. This is what I am. Here's, here's what's going on inside. This is, this is what I'm drawn to. This is what I want to be. This is how I would like to show up in the world as a human being. And she made it safe to say it. Right. Mm -hmm. And so um, there's all this banter on the internet. If you go look at like Quaku and the Midnight Mormons, uh, which I think now is called Word Radio, 
But if you if you listen to them, they've said times before, like Bill's having illicit affairs, but he's so good at hiding it, we can't find the evidence, right? And uh, they don't know what it is. They can tell that I'm talking about sex in a way that Mormons don't. Yeah, they can tell that I'm making it safe for people to explore that subject and to be vulnerable. But I'm not telling anyone how I live my life. But I will say this, that the ability to express to my spouse what my needs and wants, my desires, my cravings are around sexuality, just the ability to say that safely to a partner, whether you get to achieve it or not, whether you are able to procure those experiences or not, the ability to feel safe to say it. And uh, if there's something you need, the, the safety to feel, to uh, be able to explore that often solves the issue beyond the actual achieving of the situation. In other words, totally. <laughs> if, in other words, if your spouse says to you, this is who you are, you want to watch pornography. It's safe. I don't care. You do you. All's good. Whether you actually, you know, whether the internet's working that day or not, the the allowance from the person you love and trust saying, yeah, you're welcome to do that, makes, that really is the majority of the battle inside. Yeah. You just feel like, oh, I'm, I'm allowed to be all of me and mm -hmm. pursue all of me. And that's safe. Yeah. And, and, and I think too, that like, it's never the fantasy that is the problem. It's mm -hmm. the secrecy. It's the what? It's the secrecy. Secrecy, yeah. Right? The shadow. It's this feeling of, I have to hide this, right? There are, if you would not believe the wild and crazy fantasies that human beings have. We are so oh, fucking imagine. creative. Yeah. We are so creative. And so, and, and not only that, there are people who want to hear that. Right. And, um, like I, I would just like one, I'll like on the, on the subject of private or, or public, I'm having publicly illicit affairs. So, so midnight Mormons, please come after me. I am being publicly wicked. Come find all of the dirt on me and just destroy me because, um, I'm doing it intentionally so that you guys can, can see it. And, um, I think that if I were to like speak to most Mormons, what I would say to them is, you are probably sexually stunted. But you most assuredly are. You are sexually underdeveloped. And the yeah. only way that humans develop is through action. So you're not going to think your way into sexual maturity. You're not going to read your way into sexual maturity. The only way that you get to sexual maturity is by fucking your way to sexual maturity. And... What I think maybe people don't realize is that there are actually a lot of containers out here in the world where you can do that safely, where you don't have to just go on the internet and find a rando from somewhere to have a, have, you don't have to like hide it from your wife. You don't even have to do it by yourself. Like you can go, I, if you're interested, fucking email me, I'll send you the, the, the place where you can go. There's, there are places all over the world where you can go, they have very clear training for how to engage in that environment. They help you understand consent and boundaries and confidentiality. They help you level up. And then you can go into an environment with a bunch of other conscious, cool people who believe that sex is good and you can play 
if you can ask for it. Yeah. And that's what you really need to actually start practicing. That's the thing that stunted in a lot of Mormons is that we think that sex is bad. So I can't ask for it. No, whatever, whatever that dirty little thing is that you're like, oh my God, this is so dirty. I can't ever ask for this. Everyone would think I was so bad. Bullshit. There is there's a Reddit forum for you. There's right? a Reddit <laughs> forum for that. There is a there's a whole group of people who think that that is hot as fuck. And so find your people, like be able to express that. Don't, don't get stuck in this feeling because the energy of, of, oh, I can't tell anyone up my sexual, that, that becomes gross and toxic. And then that energy, it's energy. So it's going to move. That's going to move in some funky and potentially harmful ways. So yeah. don't let that happen to you. Acknowledge that you need to have, and that doesn't even mean, mean you need to have sex with different people, right? If you're in a, if you're in a marriage that's working for you, you don't have to go and fuck all the people. I just wanted to do that because I'm a slut and that's the life experience that I wanted to have. You don't have to do that. You can go and have what, like very, very, very fun, very rich, mm. very creative, exploratory sex with one person. There's a whole range of things that you could explain. Check out the love store in Las Vegas, folks. Uh, yeah, go to the there's love There's lots of variations of how to live out your sexual life. There's so many fun options. And, yeah. and probably you know exactly what it is because you probably, like there's probably a little part of you that's like, oh, but I always wanted this. Well, go fuck, go tell your spouse that and then go fucking do it. Yeah. Yeah. Let me, uh, let me wrap up uh, this part of the topic. And then we'll, we'll talk a little bit about... Uh, your comedy. Um, the moment I was safe to simply express what I was and who I wanted to be and what my desires, my wants, my needs were resentment just vanished. It just, it just like fell right off. Um, my feeling uh, unsatisfied with the parts of my life that were counter to who I was that was gone. Mm. And, and I think if you're a believer listening to this, have a conversation with 10 people who left 10 years ago or more, have a conversation about what their life looks like now. And if they're happier or not, and bring up this specific topic, if you want, I think you'll find that most people, when they shed the rules of morality that religion gave them uh, and start to make real internal decisions that are still like, they still, uh, value consent and goodness and not hurting others, you're going to find that I think the same thing happened for them. Resentment fell off. They were able to live their life in a much more content way and they were having a much more vibrant and fulfilling life. Yeah. And I would even, I would even add on to that and say, um, the real people who are manipulative and dangerous with sex are not the sluts. They're not the people who are having lots of sex and who are sex positive and who are having conscious and deliberate conversations because they understand how to talk about sex before they do it. The people who are dangerous are the people who are so, they have so much internalized shame that they try to manipulate things to, into happening rather than just asking for what they want. Yeah. That's where it gets really dangerous. And, and unfortunately, especially in the world of Mormonism and especially kind of coming out of the world of Mormonism, that's where a lot of people end up because they haven't learned how to ask 
And so they're just trying to, they're just trying to sort of like unconsciously manipulate someone into sleeping with them. And that, that energy is gross and toxic and not very mature. Got to learn how to ask. Love it. Love it. Absolutely. Amen. Consent. Once you understand consent, and and I think in the realm of sexuality, most especially enthusiastic consent, you should not just get a yes. You should get a hell yeah. I want to do that. Yeah. Um, But let's turn here for a moment. Let me me get rid of the uh, overlay there. Um, Let's actually take this off. So uh, let's talk for a moment about how long you've been doing stand up. I I did my first open mic in May of 21. So just over two years. Okay. Um, And you've got... uh, What's the name of the the special on YouTube that I that you point people to the most? Yeah, I call it the Spring Prophecy of the Fresh King Benjamin. The Spring Prophecy of the Fresh King Benjamin. I've watched one, it twice. Love this it. This one is going to be the this one is going to be the Fall Prophecy of the Fresh King Benjamin, and it's going to okay. be it's going to be different. Cool. I'm excited to to see this one way or another. Uh, will this be on YouTube after at some point as well? Yeah, I'm definitely going to have, I'm not, I haven't figured that out for, uh, exactly, but yeah, I'm going to have it filmed and I'll, I'll pop it yeah. up there. I mean, obviously we, we want to see these sell out. And of course they will, but yeah. um, I've, I've watched your spring prophecy show twice. I've seen other little bits that you've done. I, I think you're, again, I know you, I consider you a friend. Mm-hmm. Um, I've known you for years, but I don't say this like, oh, I'm just going to make my friend sound good. Like I, from a just a professional perspective, I really think your standup is phenomenal, and Thank I it's at least it meshes with my humor. We all have different kinds of humor. Some people love Brian Regan, and no offense to Brian, he's he's great, but I have friends who love him, and I'm like, mm, that this is not funny. Yeah. So we all have differences in comedy, but I I find your comedy hilarious. It often uh, connects to religious trauma and Mormonism, of course, specifically, but. I wanted to give you a moment to talk about this show, let people know where they can get tickets at and anything else you want to say about uh, the work you're doing in the comedy arena. Yeah, absolutely. So this is the, uh, this is um, going to be at the the downtown wise guys in Salt Lake city. It's October 13th and 14th. Um, you can get tickets. I, it's a smaller room. So this particular room is like a, it's sort of a more intimate vibe. And so these tickets will go pretty fast. So if you're if you're kind of thinking, oh, I would like to go, you should get them before day of because they'll likely sell out before the, the show starts. Um, and uh, what I'm going to do here is I I uh, I spent the last uh, couple of years on a bit of a comedy journey. I've spent, um, you know, I've been to Burning Man twice now. And uh, that experience has been really profound and moving for me. And it's also kind of given me um, a little bit of a mission, which is to uh, to uh, tell everyone that I am the true prophet of Mormonism. And that the reason that I'm the true prophet of Mormonism is because uh, I'm the only prophet. I mean, there's lots of prophets. There's Warren Jeffs, there's Russell Nelson, there's Dave Watson. Um, I'm the true prophet because I'm the only one that will tell you the truth of it, which is that Mormonism is made up. It's 100% made up. And um, we need to fix it. Like we need to clean it up. The other reason that I'm the true prophet is that at Burning Man last year, I pulled out of the ashes of the temple um, a golden plate, which I have right here. And so I just wanted to just offer this to your viewers because I know that a lot of us have been waiting for sometimes hundreds of years to see a golden plate. And here it is. It's right here. 
and um, you can come and check it out and I'll even let you hold it. You don't have to look with your spiritual eyes. You'll be able to hold it with your physical hands if you come to the, the show. And there's even some like little writing on here that I've found. And I think I'm probably going to use a seer stone to translate that and turn it into a, uh, a new book of scripture. So, yeah. And that was um, a good bit, by the way, in the, in the spring prophecy of when you did the seer stone stuff yeah. and uh, that, phenomenal, by the way, the way you tied that uh, to Mormonism and then and played some jokes off. Of and that. what Just I'm, what I'm trying to do here, cause this actually kind of speaks to the, the, the way that I view comedy, right? Cause I'm, I'm, I'm serious when I say that I think that Mormonism has harmed humans for long enough mm-hmm. and it needs to go. Amen. Like I, I mean that sincerely. And I believe that one of the most powerful ways that we can combat this kind of like dark evil dragon of Mormonism is by making fun of it. Mm. And so that's what I'm going to do as the true prophet, because uh, I would like to, I would like to have a little argument with Russell Nelson about whether or not, um, you know, just, I mean, who do, who do you think would be better? A very vibrant, sexy 34 year old who has a beanie that has an eyeball on it or a dude that walks around in a walker and looks like Skeletor. Right. <laughs> right. Mr. Burns is probably not the best person to tell us what the modern world uh uh, what it needs, right? What it needs. Yeah. The, the, we need to take the bat phone that they've got to God. We need to get it out of their hands and we need to give it to someone who will use it better. Yeah. Yeah. Where can folks get uh, tickets to the show? Um, they can go to, uh, just wiseguys.com. Um, uh, and they can get ticket. This is, I think you're sharing that right here yep. and, um, yeah, get them, get them quick because, uh, they're moving and, uh, and if a bunch of people buy them, then I can open up another show, which would be rad for me because then I get to have more money. And um, as everyone knows, you can buy anything in this world with money. And so uh, I love to have money. So, yeah, why not? Let's have some more of it. Yeah. Um, one last question about the comedy. What What is this about? What's the pointing at the tip of your nose? That, that's What's going a, on there? That's just a funny, that's just kind of a funny um, mm-hmm. picture that I, like I took. It. And then I, I just haven't gotten, I, I need to get like some new headshots that are, that this, these, this one is a couple of years old, but I just kind of like it. Like it's a headshot that I have and yeah. it's kind of interesting and fun. Um, it is like, I, as soon as I see it, I know it's, even if I just like glancing through, I see it's, I know it's you. Yeah. Um, it's kind of, and it points to a sense of like, I have a sense of humor. Like something's yeah, there's going on of, here. There's also sort of this, there's sort of this feeling of like a little bit tongue in cheek, like, like part of, part of my humor is that I, I find a lot of, funny in saying crazy shit out loud, but everyone knows that it's crazy. Right. So I, I actually like, I like to give voice sometimes to the bullshit in the brains of Mormonism and to say it as if I believe it. Like I'll say things like I was on a podcast. Um, <laughs> I was on a podcast with, with, uh, with a woman a little, a little while ago. And we were talking about some, we were talking about stuff and we ended up talking about like, why basically i just i just said like well that's because you're a woman and as a woman in mormonism we don't have to listen to what you say right which i don't believe no i don't think that but functionally that's what happens in mormonism is that you're a woman so we don't have to listen to what you say and so i like being able to be like oh that's because you're a woman and we don't have to listen to what you say right yeah, we we even have a leader who said like 
you know, say something, but don't talk too much. You know, uh, put on some lipstick and don't put talk on some too lipstick. Much. Look a little charming now and then. Yeah, you put yeah. on some lipstick, Elder Pigman. Yeah, it it is uh, your humor is hilarious. I I really like the way that you come up with you write and um, you know Louis C.K. who I respect a ton uh, has talked. I can't. I don't remember where, where it was, but he talked about like how much work goes into the delivery. Like you think you can just think of something funny, walk up on a stage and say it. But the reality is you have to practice so much like the delivery. Where do you anticipate the laugh coming? Then you go out and you try it. It fails miserably. Mm-hmm. You you adjust, you adapt. Um, maybe again, if you don't mind spending another minute or two with us, maybe talk about how much work goes into writing good comedy. Yeah, that's a great question. So I, my, 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 one of my comedy mentors said something that I really, that I really loved, which is that, um, uh, comedy is the only art form where we practice in public. Mm. Right. So with everything, if you're doing a, if you're, if you're a singer, you practice that shit beforehand, right? If you're an artist, you do that in, but with comedy, we, I mean, you can write in private, you can do things, but you really never know if something's going to work until you say it to an audience. And the only way to say something to an audience is to be on stage in front of an audience. Um, so, but so, so that's kind of like, that's, that's fun. That's kind of edgy. That makes it a little bit challenging for me. What the process kind of looks like is, is there's sort of this flow of I'll have an idea of something that I, of, of something that I think is funny. And then I'll try that out in conversation with some people. So I'll have this idea and then we'll be talking about something and I'll just kind of try it. And if I try it and I get a little ha ha ha, like I get a little pop, then I'm like, okay, that thing has something. So then I take it and I'll, I'll take that to an open mic. And what I'm looking for from the open mic is, is this funny to more people? And also what else is funny about it? What else can I get to sort of fall out from underneath it? And then I'm getting their laugh. So once I've identified what parts of what, what are the parts where people are laughing then my task becomes trimming because if I said 20 words to get to a laugh, now the question is, can I get that same laugh in 10 words? Can I get it in five words? Right? Because we often think when we're, when we're new or when we don't understand, when we don't understand like good comedy, Mm. we think that we need more exposition on the joke than we actually do. Right? And so what you want to do is you want to kind of, you so identify what, where those are. And then I'm just trimming. I'm just, I'm just playing. I'm like, is there a different way into that? Can I use that joke on another joke and just keep tagging it? And um, yeah, so it's, it's very visual for me. Like I like to kind of see it up around me. It's, it's, I like to sort of play with the, with the, the laughs that I'm getting from people. And then honestly, like the, the, the thing that is like the most frustrating about all of that is that you do all of that work, you show up and you do all of that work. Sometimes for me, it took me about a year and a half to write an hour. And mm. you do all of that and then you go and you do shit and then you just randomly say something that is spur of the moment you didn't think about and that kills. So mm. it's like it's like this, it's this, it's this balance between like, really dedicated and difficult preparation and then just letting go and doing whatever feels right. 
Because whenever, when you do that, when you're really in the zone, that, that spring prophecy, right. That, that I, that I, that I, uh, I shared about 30 to 40% of what's in that special is, is all brand new. I, I just talked like that was the first time that I talked about it because some things had happened right before the show that I wanted to respond to. And then things were happening in the show that I wanted to respond to. And so, so I had all, I had an hour of, of content, but I only did like 40 minutes of it because the other 20 minutes was me just kind of riffing on what was happening. And so it's, you got to kind of like really hyper prepare and then just sort of surrender and, and surf. Yeah. I love it. There's so much that goes into it. And I think you're doing a great job and I'm really, again, I consider myself your friend, but just as a person who uh, interacts with you in uh, social media spaces, because we're both ex-Mormon, we do know each other. Um, I consider you intelligent. I consider you have something of value to say. And so I, I bump into you once in a while. Um, I, I'm really excited to see what the next 10 years looks like for you, because I think that you really have the ability um, to come up with really great humor and humor seems to be such an incredible way to convey to all of us collectively what is wrong and right about humanity. Yeah. And uh, I'm super excited. So thanks. Uh, I, I, say, I appreciate that so much. I, yeah. I, I have so much respect for you. And so coming, coming from you, that just feels like that like fills my tank up. I'm going to, yeah, I'm going to go for um, a while. Uh, uh, show be great folks, please grab tickets. Now you don't want to wait. This will absolutely be sold out. Um, and just to finish off saying, I deeply appreciate the time you gave us this morning. I appreciate your vulnerability uh, because the whole goal in creating this series of conversations, I reached out to maybe 70 people to say, hey, pick your 10 questions out of this list of 80 and let's talk is because I think these conversations give people permission to do something different in their life that they want to that helps them to live more fully yeah. and to be better to people. Yeah. And so thank you for the two hours today. Uh, I'm deeply appreciative of you as a human being, and I'm deeply appreciative of the perspective you offered today uh, of value to others. Yeah, I, I appreciate that so much, Bill. And I, I just want to also say thanks, thank you to you for for creating the space for conversations like this yeah. to exist. Right, like we monkey see, monkey do. Right, we we there's so much in the Mormon world that we don't understand how to do because we've never seen it. And so being able to see people in conversation about vulnerable and, and sensitive topics and for that to be okay, I think is a pretty powerful gift. So I'm, I'm really, I'm just thrilled that you invited me to be a part of it. Love it. Folks, check out uh, almostawakened.org. Also check out uh, the Fresh King Benjamin, grab tickets for the upcoming show. And uh, Ben, thanks again for your time. Yeah, thank you. Take it easy.